welcome to another episode of We Are Not Wizards. My name's Richard. I'll be your host for Tuesday or Wednesday or Saturday or Sunday or 95 degrees in the shade. What are you doing? It's just ridiculous at the moment. It's all hot and sweaty and damp and just not very nice at all. But joining me today um, is... He's a gentleman who is getting involved in the Kickstarter campaign, Rurik Dawn of Kiev. He's involved in the development of it. He's jumping in with a campaign. But he is a man in his own right who is going around like Kane in Kung Fu, sorting out people's board game designs and development. It is John Brieger. Hello, John. Hello, and good evening. Uh, well, it's afternoon. Good, good morning. Good yeah. <laughs> Hello. Um, Welcome. If you're in Australia, good morning tomorrow. Uh, tell I me guess. what the future is like. I guess if you're like California, I hope you're enjoying your lunch. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, you know if you're in, you know, I don't know if you're in New York. Hey, have a burger, um, etc., etc. Um, <laughs> thank Some you. Some sort coming. of geographical reference. There's just, you know, stuff. Things. If it's Japan, it's tomorrow, and good morning to you, and you must be up early having a jog, kind of thing. It's all kind of, it's all kind of relative in this here lovely spinny globe thing that we're involved in. Thank you for coming on, John. Um, you. No, my had, pleasure. We've had a break. We've been moving house, and we've been organising. So you are currently, whether you like it or not, you're sitting in the games cupboard. You're actually. I consider that an honour, personally. You're right next to a copy of Catacombs 3rd Edition. You are in front of a copy of The Others, right next to Super Dungeon Explorer. And you're covering up The Godfather and Cry Havoc. So I think you're in pretty good company, if I'm being perfectly honest. So it's not a I bad thing. I sound like I'm in better company than you are. You are stacked on a, a pile of prototype rule books. So... <laughs> No one I, wants to read prototype rule books. I yeah, I kind of feel a bit kind of unfinished. If I'm being a bit, aren't I'm, we all unfinished, Richard? I think you know. There's definitely a couple of eyes in my life that haven't been dotted. I'll tell you that for sure. Um, we better do the admin first of all. Um, first of all, thank you for joining us. Um, the reason that we do this is um, quite simply because there is. Just still not enough podcasts out there about board games. You'd think after almost three years of us grinding through this podcast wilderness that we would be finding podcasts about board games, but nothing at all. It's about knitting and beekeeping, and we're potentially in the wrong section in Apple Podcasts, but that's just one of those things that happens. The second reason Wait, this that... is this is not a uh, beekeeping podcast. I think I came on the wrong show. <laughs> there's no there's no ap there's no stuff going on. There's no there's no propolis. You're not going to be getting it. We're not going to be discussing bee pollen. There is no royal jelly face cream going on. There is nothing along those lines. Um, which is. <laughs> It's a really strange. It's like how the how the hell do you know all that? It's like because in my day job at the moment, one of my clients, <laughs> I'm helping them to market their range of bee products. 
<laughs> so I've had to learn all about bee pollen and what propolis is and what royal jelly is, and it's a fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. So there you go. So, yeah, I do know about these things, John. Come at me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, new new topic for today. Yeah, new topic for today. Let's move on to the... Um, no, let's not. Let's not do that because we are here to have a good chat about your good self. Um, and as we do always, we like to have a little kind of a delve back into um, your career. I guess your history with the the kind of the hobby. So we're going to have a, I guess we're going to have like maybe a, a kind of a little bit step back into the past before we step into the early dawn of the present and then move off into the Kiev of the future. That's rubbish and terrible, but, you know, I was struggling there and it's the best I could come up with. Um, I'm fine with it. That's I, I, I'm not editing it, as you know. I never edit. <laughs> um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into the hobby, first of all? Yeah, I, I think like a lot of people, I had kind of a series of, of gateway games through high school, and then I went to university. I, I studied installation art and design uh, with a focus on interactive physical experiences so lots of big immersive installations themed entertainment that kind of thing and part of that was I ended up doing a lot of games as part of my university coursework and these were you know not really things I was ever intending to take to market you know you'd make the prototype you'd play test it once or twice then you turn it in you say great I'm finished but I came out of university with you know maybe six somewhere between six and a dozen working board game prototypes. And Mm. then they all sat on a shelf for years and years as I was, you know, starting my starting full-time job being the workforce. And then I moved from California to London in 2016 and started pulling things off the shelf. I knew no one in the UK other than my coworkers And joined the board game design community and started taking it a lot more seriously beyond just this is a hobby that, you know, maybe I'd like to do this one day and saying, no, now is the time where I'd really like to try to see one of these things through if it's good enough. And I got a lot of really wonderful mentorship, including from some people who have been on the show, uh, Bez, who is lovely. And the entire kind of playtest UK community, which is if you are in the UK and you're thinking, oh, I wonder what this whole making board games thing is about, go check out a meetup and just show up and and learn and and get inspired because it is a a really, really wonderful community. Was that a different is is that a different kind of culture, the UK board game scene over kind of what what you've experienced in different places. I mean, I know you and I joke slightly before the show about, you know, stiff up her lip and what can we say? And can we say, can we say naughty words like bum and things like that? But it was kind of like in terms of the kind of the, is there a kind of a different kind of approach and culture with regards to kind of like board game design that you noticed kind of being involved directly in there? Well, 
I, I certainly don't want to put myself as, as speaking for the entire United States because I actually think the, but you the are. game <laughs> design culture within the U.S. is fragmented by region. And, and yeah. the community we have here in California is probably very different than the community that is centered in the Midwest and the community that's centered in the New York region. Hmm. But broadly, one of the things that I think, at least for London itself, London does not have local game stores that have extensive play space there are game stores yeah but they are not places that you go to play games they're places you go to buy games primarily yeah 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 no retail retail's always been like that kind of that kind of space it's changing because i think the current plan i mean there's a there's a place um not too far from my work where it's a mixture between the two and they've got a massive space for playing but yeah, traditionally, retail was always about um, the the amount of stuff that you could get in a shelf within four feet, kind of thing. And I yeah. think that I think they're trying to try to change that. And so, I think because of that, there's a number of public meetup groups, uh, London on Board, mm-hmm. uh, a couple others that meet in restaurants, they meet in pubs. And so it's a, a social scene where with games at kind of the heart, but there's also drinking and food and that, and just the fact that you're meeting in a pub is a very different environment than meeting in a game store where the space is dedicated to gaming and there's lots of children. And so that creates a, a culture difference a little bit right there. In terms I mean, of, is that oh, in terms ahead. of is that in terms of how you socialize with people that are there? I mean, is it a farm? Is it a less formal environment kind of meeting in a pub, or is it more? You know, is it is it kind of more like well, let's have a couple of drinks and then thrash out some kind of ideas kind of thing? I wouldn't know that the game design in general is a fairly casual scene. I wouldn't know that. UK is less formal, but more, I think, that it's more social. There's more chit-chat. There's more talk. There's more bonding over things that are not just games, Mm -hmm. which I think is good. I think you want to be working alongside people that you have a greater bond with than just this is a thing that we... one, One sole thing that we both care about. Did you find you were cutting across... In that case, were you kind of cutting across people by finding out kind of more that you had in common as people as opposed to, oh, do you like, you know, oh, do you like this game? Yeah, I like this game. What about this game? Oh, I don't like this game kind of thing. Was it kind of you're trying to find bigger kind of common ground as opposed to just the kind of the board game stuff? I, 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 I'd I certainly like to think so. And I think for me, it was... A, also, that was part of my social circle. You know, mm. I I really didn't know anyone in L- London when I moved, and so between the board game clubs and the board game design, that became a lot of my friends and people who I would see regularly, and people who I still keep in touch with now that I moved back to the states and mm. we you know try to meet up at conventions and chat via Twitter, etc. So did you while you were um, while you were working in London? I mean, were you involved in the board game industry while you were in London, or I mean, was it just like a creative industry where you were involved in when you were when you were working in London? 
so I work actually designing retail stores. Uh, that's oh. my my primary occupation. So still that kind of interactive physical experience, and I do a lot of user research where I'm watching customers go through the store or watching employees help customers and trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to make that experience better. And there's a lot of parallelisms between that and playtesting a board game in terms of the types of observational research and iterating designs that you're doing. So when I was joining the what I would call the board game design hobby more seriously, I was carrying over a lot from already being a professional designer working full-time. And I think a lot of people learn game design is yeah. also the first time they're learning design of any kind. The yeah. whole process of conceptualizing a product, improving it based on feedback, etc. And so I do. I felt like I, I did have a little bit of a jump start. And then the fact that I was able to tap into people who were so much more experienced than I was in terms of the game side meant that I got a lot of mentorship very quickly. And that was really, really big for me. So would you design the journey of... kind of like a retail customer and would you be the person that would like take various kind of layouts of retail stores and then judge how the customer kind of navigated them which parts they would stop on which parts they would naturally end up spending more time at because of the design and stuff like that you kind of that kind of almost like pathfinding and things like that is that kind of what you would you would deal with uh, that can certainly be a part of it. It can be as as macro level as pathfinding the whole store. It can be yeah. focused down on here's one little element that sits on one counter, and let's see how we can get people to pick it up and interact with it. That's fine. I mean, do you, that must take hours. Is that is that? Do you kind of get into kind of like customer psychology and stuff like that as well? What's going to make somebody kind of stop? Is it a different color? Is it a different kind of height and stuff like that? Or how long it's on the you know what kind of shelf it's on, easy access. I think you have to kind of look at all all of that kind of thing as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that actually has helped on the, the gaming side as well mm. is understanding that, that customer psychology and understanding how to watch someone using and interacting with an object or with a space mm-hmm. and translating that into, well, here's how we can make that experience even better for them. So okay, so okay, but so when you are going shopping, are you actually going to walk around and say, "I've got to switch off because I wouldn't have that there, or I wouldn't have this there"? Or yeah, it, I I will say I now you you kind of can't stop, and I think you know game designers talk about this too sometimes. Now when yeah. they play games for fun, they have to try to switch it off so yeah. they're not critiquing the game that they're playing. Yeah. And the same is true for me when I when I go shopping. I'm like, ooh, I, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> you walk around at Walmart going, you know, this looks like Jerry did this. I don't know. It could be, <laughs> could be Susan. <laughs> I don't know. This doesn't, Does this look like a Susan to you? This definitely looks like a Susan. Look at the height of that counter over there. Did you, I mean, I take it. Are but, there a lot, are there a lot of people in your industry that do your job? I mean, it sounds like it's a very kind of specialist kind of field. It is a a specialist field, but it's one of those things I think a lot of people don't think about because it's mostly in, invisible to you. You know, yeah. if you're looking around, well, you're in a closet full of board games, so that's a little different. <laughs> yeah. But every single Definitely. physical object 
around you was designed by a person, right? Someone had to look at that thing and say, it's going to be this shape and this is how we're going to make it. Yeah. And so a lot of that stuff just blends into the background. Uh, But, you know, if you're like, oh, here's a physical object, someone had to design that thing. Yeah. Do you find, I mean, are there, I mean, are there other people that you know that you're aware of in the industry that you can actually point and say, well, that's definitely that person that's been involved in this design, or is there so many, is there so many people kind of involved in the same kind of space that you're in? I don't know that I, well, either my taste is not sophisticated enough or it's <laughs> too difficult to tell. I couldn't point it out as being product of an individual designer, but there's yeah. certainly styles, right? There's patterns that you start yeah. to recognize. You're like, oh, this store is using the same pattern as this store is using the same pattern as this store. All right, or it's okay. this pattern with one little tweak. Yeah. Do you, and I take it you pick up on, I just, sorry, John, I just find this kind of, I, I always find kind of, the board game stuff's really fascinating, but also the people that are involved in the board game, kind of what they're doing externally to board games, I find that equally as fascinating because I always find that kind of forms the direction in which people go in terms of everything from how they design the game to what they want to do with their kind of like their stretch goals or what they're doing with the kind of the box, which is why I'm, I'm asking these intrusive. It's like I'm interviewing you for a job. <laughs> kind of thing but no i mean yeah i mean is that so i it's just i just find that kind of kind of whole interest because that as you said that must be something that then when you're sitting down with a game in front of you um and you're doing the development side because let's get this straight you've you, you know you're the project you're involved just now um rurik rurik you're, down of kiev yeah you're the developer of Correct. That game. So, pro- so this is an important thing that we, you know, we we kind of put. I guess we labour the point on this is that the designer of the game and the developer of the game can be two separate people, which is taking yes. an idea and then making it kind of work, and making everything kind of come into place. So was that was that what you were doing? Were you brought in for kind of like Rurik? And how? I mean, how did you get into that anyway? I mean, we've obviously we've we've jumped ahead a bit, but. Stepping back a bit, you're you're in London, you're doing playtests and you're getting involved in the Playtest UK, you're meeting all these fabulous people. Was that point, was the cogs kind of turning? Were you thinking about putting a game together? Were you thinking, right, I need to kind of get more involved in the industry? I mean, what was your, what was your kind of your next step in your journey? Uh, so ne- next step was finishing up some designs and I realized pretty early that I did not want to be publishing games. So I was looking at licensing games to publishers and eventually started pitching a couple completed designs towards the end of my time in the UK. And then Mm. once I moved back to the US, uh, as I started signing things, I was like, oh, this is a this is something that I'm actually pretty good at Uh, (laughs) or I like to delude myself into thinking I'm pretty good at it. And... I signed a game called Door Number Three, which is a really lightweight family bluffing game that I designed while I was living in the UK, but then have signed to an American publisher, Peacekeeper Games, who's Mm -hmm. based in Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. And we have a really good working relationship, and I was looking to get more seriously into the board game industry, doing development and playtesting 
And one of the things that I like to design is I've now at this point built a number of games with programming as part of the core element. So Kirk, who is the head of Peacekeeper Games, said, we have this really, really cool area control game with a unique new programming mechanism. Yeah. And would you like to be the developer for it? And I said, yes, yes, I definitely would. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you had me at would. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, so I got involved in that project in the, in the spring and we spent several months really intensely play testing it and and making tweaks. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that was one where it wasn't just an idea at the point it came to me, you know, uh, Stan Kordonsky, who's the designer of that game, is a really, really excellent designer. He designed Dice Hospital, which uh, is coming out from uh, Alley Cat Games yeah. pretty soon. Cesar, yeah, yeah, fantastic yeah, from, looking game, yeah. And but there, you know, there were lots of of little tweaks where we were trying to make things a little more balanced or tweak some part of the experience. And we went live on Kickstarter just about two weeks ago, as of the time of this recording. So. Probably by the time this releases, you will be able to find it through a, a you know a pledge manager or something similar. But it's been a really really wonderful experience working with that team. So I mean, as a developer, is it sometimes you're just taking an idea and fleshing out as much as possible and stripping things back and adding stuff in? I mean, did you have to do a lot of work for you know the current game? Or was that pretty much a case of tidying stuff up and reworking things for yourself? Uh, it's certainly a lot of work either way. Even the the tidying is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It, I will say, you know, we did very few major changes to the actual gameplay. Yeah, uh, there were lots of lots of little tweaks. The biggest change that I made actually was it came as a two to four player game, and I designed the entire solo mode myself. And that was a, a fairly large undertaking just in terms of, of scope of testing and, and the design space and establishing the solo system. But yeah. we've gotten our first couple reviews back that were specifically about the solo system and they've been really positive. So that's that's good to hear for me. Yeah, I mean, is it? I mean, that must be tough because you're not just kind of like making it. I've seen people kind of ask, "Can you do like a two-player mode, or could you expand to add in like a fifth or a sixth player?" I've seen that a lot. But solo gaming seems to be something which is becoming more and more um, popular. I mean, um, both sides of my table, for instance, um, are doing seem to be doing a lot of kind of coverage on like the solo play variants. I see it becoming more and more prevalent in terms of even as an addition to kind of like um, to Kickstarters themselves as opening up as an additional kind of sometimes it's even like a stretch goal to open up a kind of a kind of a solo mode. But I mean it must have taken you hours to put kind of everything together and work out all the kind of the different kind of eventualities. I mean I've seen them in um, Jamie Stegmaier stuff. You I mean he he runs a lot of the automata? I've seen it on, say, Scythe and um, yeah. Viticulture. All have their kind of their their kind of their solo play variants. Was that what you had to consider yourself, or were you, or did you, did you approach it from a kind of like a different a different way when you were when you were doing it? That's what I think is kind of the the 
the gold standard right now is the Atoma system. So Morton Pedersen is the developer for Stonemeyer Games, who's done the the Scythe Atoma, the Viticulture Atoma, and I would I would consider his to be definitely the the current state of the art in terms of solo play variants. And for me, I was looking at those. And Rurik is a very, very heavily interactive game. Mm-hmm. Uh, the core action selection mechanism is something we call auction programming, yeah, uh, which is a, a really wild worker placement variant where you're kind of bidding on your actions, but the higher bids are also going to go at the end of the round. And so you're both bidding on your actions, but also sequencing a program for the round. Yeah. And because of that, you have interaction in the action selection which is something you know something like viticulture you know you're blocking spots but you yeah, also yeah. are driving an area control game and you have lots and lots of interaction on the the map and board itself this is not a game like scythe where there's only a couple times during the game that your two forces are going to butt up against each other it's it's very very tight and because of that i knew i needed to drive that system a little further so it really feels like it's working against you the whole time. So maybe it's worth uh, giving a, a 45 second overview of, of Rurik Don of Kiev at this point. Please, yes, that's what I was going to say because I was like, I was slightly perplexed, <laughs> slightly perplexed because you say it's a Euro style realm building, realm building game featuring area control. Now my, and obviously Correct me if I'm wrong, take me outside and set me on fire as well. But I would usually paint a Euro-style game with basically everybody working on their own little thing and then the occasional kind of clash. And that's always something that's I found I've struggled with Euro games, that people saying Euro games are the best. And it's like, well, you could have 16 people around the table, but it's only the end result that kind of gets it. Um, but then you're saying it's area control. And that's kind of like, well, that sounds like it's a bit kind of heads-on, heads-on, bashing up against people and making their day difficult. So is was that what you would... I mean, is that the kind of the overview, I mean, for Rurik itself? Yeah, so Rurik Don of Kiev is set in the 11th century empire of Kievan Rus, which was a real civilization that forms the roots of what's now Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. And it's a really underexplored historical period in gaming. So that was part of the interesting things about this game is that it shines a light on a period of history that a lot of people don't really know much about. And all the the characters are real people involved in this real event, the Kievan Rus Succession War. Vladimir the Great dies, and he has something like 14 sons, and he set them all up as the governors of their own city-states. And they all, he dies, and they all think, hmm, I could be the Grand Prince of Kiev and go to war, (laughs) brother fighting brother, for, you know, 25 years. Yeah. And and that's the the environment we're trying to capture is this, you know, thriving empire that's been been shattered to pieces. And now you have siblings vying for the throne, and there's all this intrigue and drama that that creates. But... It is a, as you said, a Euro-style game. So it's got an emphasis on some elements of the, the power struggle in Kievan Rus that are very unique to that time period. The government was set up as 
all these little mare ships. Uh, so you had these mares called Posadniks. And yeah. a key part of becoming the ruler was just convincing all these people that, hey, my brother shouldn't be prince. I should be prince because I'm going to, you know, build you churches or, you know, give you giant bribes. And so the princes would throw these elaborate feasts and give bribes and say, you know, try to say, oh, I'm going to build you a fort if you support me. And a lot of the game is actually about that part of the political struggle, as well as moving troops around the board and a little bit of fighting. Because, I mean, it looks, I mean, it's one of the things that's also leveled at Euro games sometimes as well is the theme doesn't matter in relation to kind of like the mathematics and the mechanics of the game. So is it really important when the game was getting developed that you kind of intersperse the theme as much as possible to kind of make it feel that people were experiencing that time instead of sitting there and going, well, if I go here, I'll get this resource. If I go here, I'll control this area kind of thing. Definitely. Uh, we, we treat it a lot like historical fiction. This is our opportunity to bring this setting to life for players. Yeah. Is it going to be a, a conflict simulation like a war game would be? Absolutely not. It is mm-hmm. very much a, a board game. But if we can give players the, the chance to feel that theme, but still have that really, really tight new mechanic, that's that's going to be a big win for us. Yeah, yeah. Were you, um, I mean, you obviously we both mentioned kind of like Scythe. Were you aware of making sure that people were very clear with what you or guys were trying to achieve as a game? Because I think the only criticism that ever gets late, that ever gets leveled at Scythe, and I would say successfully as well, is that Scythe as a game, the box and what you pull out of the box gives a completely different impression as to how the actual game plays <laughs> in terms of you're expecting mech combat and you're ending up with kind of like area control and resource management. Yeah, I think that was that was certainly on our mind. Uh, all of us quite quite like Scythe. I I I don't want to parallel them too closely because I think there are things about Rook that fans of Scythe are going to really really like, and then there are people who dislike Scythe who would also still really like Rook because it is a very it's a mm-hmm. higher interaction game. Uh, you are interacting with your opponents both in the way that you select actions and on the board itself. Mm-hmm. But it's a it is not a high conflict combat game. There's not a lot of attacking. It's a lot of moving troops around so that you dominate a region by majority or clever use of of tactics so that you can bump someone's action down so they can't quite do what they thought they could do. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. So how I mean, how does a round run? I mean, you're, uh, if you're sitting, you're sitting down in front of your, you know, you're sitting down. You're about to take your turn. How would you, how would you play a particular round? How would you play that? So the core of Rurik is a new mechanism called auction programming, and in front of right. you is going to be a set of numbered advisor meeples. So let's say they're one, two, four, and five. Then there's going to be six actions, each of which is a column. So as an example, the move action. The top move space is going to be four, then three, then two, then one. So if I place my numbered uh, advisor meeple into an empty column, I go to the top. Mm. So let's say I put my two at the top of the move column. So right now, I would be moving four spaces. But 
you could put your number four advisor meeple into the move column, and because your number's higher than mine, you bump me down, and now you're moving four, and I move three. And okay. so we're going to go around placing our advisors one at a time until we've mm-hmm. placed all of them, and then we're going to start pulling them off the board to resolve our actions based on how we have bid through those action columns. So that's okay. the that's the auction part of the the auction programming. The twist yeah, yeah. is the numbers also matter for what order you do your actions because you must perform your actions from lowest number to highest number. So I would have to do those actions in order one, two, four, five, which means right, that okay. numbers that are the most likely to end up at the top of the column with the highest and most powerful version of the action are also going to go last in the round. So you're setting up this sequence of events for you to play out on the board. That's interesting. I can see... Because in Viticulture, there's a you decide the player turn, but then apart from that, there's no kind of there's no difference in in, in in kind of what you're doing. You're just you know there's no difference in the power or the availability or what you can kind of have. I mean, there's a little bit when you're placing the stuff on the board, but this is so you're you're effectively you have to sometimes decide whether to play kind of first to play first play last in order to kind of get the advantage kind of thing. I mean, that must have taken a lot of playtesting to get that kind of right yeah i i am a big playtesting proponent i talk a lot about playtesting on on podcasts and on on twitter i i write mm-hmm. a playtesting tip of the day uh in some sections of the year and that's one of the things we really tried to to dial in because that's the core new innovative part of the game that we think players are really going to latch on to and so mm-hmm. Part of playtesting is fixing bugs, right? Finding things that people aren't enjoying and trying to, to smooth them over or eliminate them. But I'm a big believer that part of development is finding the thing that's the best part of the game and, you know, shining it to shine even brighter. And doing that for the auction programming element, fine-tuning things like when the advisors are unlocked, how many you get at different player counts... We actually originally had seven action columns and we dropped it to six just to increase the amount of times you get that bribing and the bumping uh, and that competition over the action column. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you, I mean, when you're developing something like this, because I've not, I, I must admit, I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of developers, designers talk about the mechanics and I've not really heard of something similar, as similar to this before. Is there part of you that hopes that maybe you see this kind of replicated in kind of other games, or is it something that's going to become? You're hoping it becomes a staple of other games that you kind of get involved in. Uh, so the, this particular campaign is is doing pretty well, and mm-hmm. I don't I can don't want to make any announcements, but I would not be surprised to see another game using this mechanism at some point in the future. That's and neither that's nor about yes, as much John. as I will say. <laughs> <laughs> that's about as in, that's about as ambiguous as a beach towel. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean the game itself is doing. Um, you're you're doing re- it's doing like really really well with regards to funding. I mean it's kind of like uh, it's almost reached kind of double funding target. I think it's about well it's sitting about eight almost eighty five thousand dollars. Which is pretty, yeah. which is pretty cool. I mean, does that 
does that kind of get you excited? I mean, are you like kind of sitting there and going, this is, this is good stuff. I mean, this is going to help my potential career, get my name out kind of there. Um, I mean, is that, I mean, at the moment, are you kind of like, this is, this is, this is a cool place. This is, I'm, I'm in a cool place at the moment with regards to where I wanted to be in the kind of like the board game space. Yeah. I, I think it's been a pretty, pretty wonderful experience. I've, assisted on a couple kickstarter campaigns before this and I, i've run one of my own not in the board game space mm-hmm. but this is the first one where i've been really active i've you know i designed the solo mode i've been answering questions in the comments for really representing the publisher and that's been really cool because it's a it's a great game and the reviews that have come in have been really positive and that that kind of gives you a really warm feeling that's one of the things i like the most on the design side and on the development side is when you get to see someone else enjoying something that you've made, that's, that's the biggest reward in the world. Is it interesting to see kind of like with you being involved in the kind of the Kickstarter community kind of interacting with them? Is it interesting to see kind of like people start to become your champions to kind of take over be answering questions the guys that are like obviously they've gone through the rule book and they've checked over everything and you know that they're, they're really kind of getting involved getting passionate and getting as excited is it is it kind of strange to see somebody who hasn't potentially physically played the game themselves getting kind of really excited about something that you've spent a good time kind of creating strange isn't the right word i think it's a uh... It's for me it's a it's a great feeling to know that something that our team has put together can actually inspire that much passion. Yeah. And while Kickstarter is not a a perfect platform and I don't think that all games should be released through it. Yeah. That is one of the things that it can do better than just putting up a pre-order on your website in terms of pre-funding a print run is building that community and getting people invested and excited in the success of the product i mean while you're i mean while your campaign was going there was obviously that rather famous incident with that um rather kind of what turned out to be a massive puff of smoke Ah, overturn rising sands yes yes. (laughs) um i mean as somebody who was running a campaign almost kind of like side by side did it can did that was there discussions in camp? Was there any concerns about? Oh my goodness, is this going to ruin? Is this going to ruin things for the legitimate guys? Or were you just kind of like quietly confident? Um, I take it that I mean the discussions must have come up at some point within within yourselves. Yeah. Well, this is this is something uh, that I think is really important. Is as a creator. When I actually first looked at the overturned Rising Sands page, well before they had the big plagiarism announcement, you know, I was just looking through their pledge levels and I thought, you know, this is a lot of plastic for the price point they're offering. They're probably going to lose money delivering this game. And that's that's a red flag right there uh, to me. And I, I said as much in some, some kind of off-platform chats. And then as things come out, you start seeing this pattern, right? There's no rule book available at launch, and they keep saying it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Uh, and so on our side, that makes us feel as creators like, 
we're doing things right, right? You know, we we have price points that we think make sense. The the rule book is available from day one. Is it the final rule book? No, we're still making some editing and layout tweaks, and yeah. we still need to add the the solo rules are are done, but we haven't added them into the rule book. And but at least it's available. Backers can get a sense of of gameplay. We have independent reviewers who are playing the game without us present, and and all of those things. In some ways you can look at overturn almost as an example for what not to do as a creator, both in terms of running your campaign and plagiarizing things, obviously, but even the way they interact with their community and the pledge levels they set up every single time they had a decision to make that was not related to, is this an interesting piece of art or component? They, they made it wrong. I think, um, I think what's interesting about it is the fact that, um, there was still so many people had put their money down for the Kickstarter. <laughs> I mean, yeah. even when it closed, I mean, even when they finished it off, there was still a massive number of people who had been... I mean, it was still sitting at like... I think it was still sitting about £87,000 or something like that. Um, which is, I think it's like a hundred. Well, I mean, Canadian dollars, $150,000. So you're looking at maybe, what, $110,000? So there was still, like, all these people that had willing to drop that amount of money, even through all the comments, even through all the warnings and everything like that as well, which was really kind of, really kind of weird, kind of strange. But, I mean, you, I take it, it didn't it didn't seem to affect you. I mean, you, you guys still seem to be kind of growing from kind of strength to strength. Um, I mean... In terms of kind of stretch goals um, for for the campaign, has that been something that I mean, in terms of a develop from a developer point of view, because I take it you would be obviously developing the game as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Do you have to consider kind of stretch goals, knowing that you're going to be taking it to Kickstarter as well? Uh, for a project like Rurik, we definitely were planning stretch goals. You know, not during the design phase, but certainly by the time it had gotten to me as a developer, I was already thinking about some of that thing. So any any place where the game has has content that can be plugged in, mm-hmm. if you think about uh, decks of cards, right, uh, types of tokens, mm-hmm. I was developing additional content beyond the original design, partly because we're going to take some of that content and throw it out because we don't think it's as as good of an experience as it could have been. Mm -hmm. And partly, you know, for example, Rurik, you play as a specific potential heir to the throne, right? So you might be Prince Spidepulk or you might be Princess Maria. And we, and fortunately, Vladimir had, you know, like 14 male children and many (laughs) female children and then an infinite number of, uh, unacknowledged illegitimate children so we built out a lot more both characters and potential player powers yeah. than will be used even in the game and in the stretch goals because we tested variants of these things and yeah, we tested yeah. extra ones knowing that we would inevitably add a couple more leaders or in the event that we didn't hit those stretch goals maybe we would just save them for an expansion or release them as a you know, an upgrade or an add-on sometime later in the year. 
I mean, there's obviously there's the big guys out there that seem to um, use stretch goals of ways ways of adding content that clearly was probably going to be in the game kind of anyway. Um, I mean, what your kind of thoughts? I mean, you're you're you. I guess you don't know when you're putting it out with yourselves if it was if it's going to get funded in the first place. So you're yeah. just saying, well, we've got to create the full game here and get the kind of the full game kind of out there. Yeah, exactly. And I we started with what we think is a, a very premium product already. You know, it already had miniatures for all of the all of the characters and for all of the troops. We started with, you know, shaped wooden resources instead of little cubes. And I think there are a lot of companies that would have just said, Well, we're gonna start with cubes knowing we're gonna upgrade them all to shapes during the campaign, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas Peacekeeper is still a, a very small publisher and while we planned and tested gameplay content for these stretch goals, we certainly are not assuming that all of them are going to be able to make it into the game. And we're, we are planning that base product to be a full-featured, deluxe, premium product all on its own, even if we never hit stretch goals. I mean, it looks stunning. As I mean, as a game, I mean, it's a beautiful, colorful, um, stunning-looking game when you see it i mean um well thank you i mean is well i mean and i see a lot i see a lot i see a lot of kickstarters and there's i'm i'm a sucker for art so if i see something that looks you know if it looks the business then automatically my little you know my my wallet starts to twitching and it's like can i can i kind of thing um (laughs) kind of thing um i mean in, in in terms of you know do you have kind of any kind of were you having input in that in terms of artistic direction is that something you sit down with the artists on as well to try when you're obviously working away on the developing the game and you're trying to keep it within a kind of help it keep within a particular kind of vision were you also involved in kind of like the artistic side of things as well just kind of giving ideas kind of spitballing kind of giving feedback kind of back and forward as well well, I, I did offer some ideas in terms of artwork concepts, and especially a lot of what I offered up was ideas for graphic design and, and interface layout, ways to make the, the gameplay elements easier to use and easier to handle for players. Yeah. Uh, the art direction in terms of the the sculpting and the, the illustrations was primarily handled by Kirk, who I think did a fantastic job liaising with we had several artists on this game one doing characters one doing landscapes one doing the mats and that art direction was was principally handled by the publisher though as pieces would come back obviously both the designer and i would be looking at them and offering feedback i mean and i guess kind of going forward i mean the game's the game's the game's gonna fund. I mean, the game's gonna go there. Yes. There's there's a yeah. possibility. You know, it's we're looking at, you know, from where I'm sitting just now, looking at my, um, you know, looking at the the kind of I guess the potential calculations here. It looks like a hundred k is plus is easily kind of within your reach. You know, based on kind of how the how the campaign's performing just now. Yeah, and I I don't want to make any personal predictions because of course this episode is going to come out likely after the campaign ends so i will look very silly no john john if you're gonna make a prediction this episode's going out asap 
I'll have this bad boy, even if I have to like sing the theme tune myself. This episode's going out before this campaign. Finishes. Honestly, that might that might be a bonus. You know, uh, who cares about interview with John Brieger? Richard's <laughs> singing, singing the theme song. Now that is I a draw. I am not gonna <laughs> sing the theme song, not unless people ask. Um, not not unless people offer cold hard cash. Um, All right. Well, you I you heard sing. it here first. Patreon backers, <laughs> ple- up your pledge. <laughs> Richard to th- sing that no, theme song. Don't no, don't patreon.com forward slash we're not wizards. Won't don't do that. Um But I mean, I guess, um does this open more doors for you? I mean I'm only joking aside and saying, well you've got you're you're saying one seventeen, aren't you? Are you thinking one twenty two? Give us a figure, John. Come on, you can't drop in and say Uh you've, so you've, <laughs> Rather than a, a specific dollar amount, I will say I think we are on track to to sell about maybe maybe two thousand copies of the game. Who knows what will happen in the last yeah. forty eight hours of the campaign? Yeah. Uh, we also have some some really fun kind of press and uh, stretch goal stuff coming up that might drive a little bit more. But important to note, in addition to all the backers that are listed on the campaign page, we have a retailer tier that has twenty four backers. And all of those retailers are ordering multiple copies. And so that's that's really important for us mm-hmm. in terms of getting the game out broader after the Kickstarter that we, we will have a pledge manager for, for late pledges. Because yeah. this game is, is, as of now, not going to be in, in broad distribution. And so we, though we are, we are looking at some distribution options as well. As a developer, okay, as a developer... Does that make you sad? I mean, one of the things we talk about, one of the things that comes up again and again, yeah, there'll be, like, I'm looking at my towering inferno of extremely combustible cardboard, right? And right in front of me is a copy of Heavy Steam by Greenbrier Games, okay? Underneath that, there's Catacombs 3rd Edition by Elsra. I've got to the right, I've got Epic Resort. I've got... um. I've got Steampunk Rally, I've got Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty's Web, and I don't think you'll ever, ever see these in retail. They'll maybe potentially all be in the second-hand kind of market. So as, a div- as I guess my question is, does that make you kind of like, oh, that's a bit that potentially the game is going to have a limited run and then that'll be it? There potentially will only be a finite 2,000 copies kind of out there. Uh I does does it make me sad that not as many people are going to play this game as I think would potentially enjoy it? Yes, of course. But I I don't know that I am concerned about it. I think if the game does well and is successful, we will mm-hmm. reprint it. Yeah, uh, potentially with an expansion, and. Even in retail, the shelf life of games is is going down right now, and this is a, a hit driven industry. And you never know where lightning is going to strike. If you look at a game like Gloomhaven, right, number one on BGG, you would yeah. never have on their first campaign. You know, I never would have predicted a that that would be a number one hit game, no. but b just based on the size and the price point, 
that game actually is selling thousands and thousands of copies into retail channels, which I never would have expected from a big box premium product like that. And it's, yeah, yeah. So there are there are always exceptions that that prove the rule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Has that given you confidence in kind of like your next projects then? I mean, moving away from Rurik and, and, and obviously bringing it back to... Yeah, you, you y- talked about saying... opening doors. Uh, yeah. You know, I am already onboarding a lot more contract development clients. I have more work coming in right now, actually, than I can necessarily take on in terms of number of hours in the week, but that's a, a good space to be in. Mm-hmm. I'm working primarily with small indie publishers, some of whom are using Kickstarter, some of whom are using... Uh, just direct web sales, yeah. Uh, or and some of them are in distribution. Some of them, some of them are not. But I am always paying attention not to necessarily is this product going to sell you know hundreds of thousands of units because that's a very very low number of products per year in the games industry. But do I want to be working with this person? Do I think that this product is new, unique, and industry interesting. Especially, do I think they're committed to making a high-quality product with good art direction? Yeah, That's something that I'm paying attention to. Because what I would love to, to say is, you know, if someone is looking over all the games on my shelf, that it's not just the ones that I've worked on or the ones with the the weird art direction that you're like, Oh, this is, this is a, this must be a weird (laughs) indie game. Uh, (laughs) you know, that they, they stand proud, but beside all the, the big budget retail titles, uh, that said, I do work on some really weird indie games. I released a two page RPG on Thursday. Uh, so (laughs) yes, I was, I was slowly winding my way up the castle road (laughs) To go and tell us about this, please. Yeah, so uh, my newest game is called Doggo Delvers. It's a two-page, lightweight storytelling game based on the Honey Heist system. And you are all dogs. Uh, the It's just basically an opportunity for you to get together with your friends and tell a series of very silly dog jokes. The realm is in grave danger. And you can only be certain of these two things. One, this is the outset of the greatest quest the world has ever known. Two, you are a very good dog. <laughs> uh, and it's know, it's right? two pages. The, the front page is for the players. The back page is for the game master or dog master, if you prefer the DM abbreviation. And it's available for free online. You can just download it as a PDF and, and print it out. And then there is also a a Kickstarter for a set of Dungeons and Dragons dog miniatures, and Whoa. the game is written specifically so that uh, the twelve breeds of dog you can be in this game are also the twelve breeds of dog that this Kickstarter has the miniatures for. Um, so I'm not actually a part of that Kickstarter campaign. I just saw it when they were pre-marketing it a couple months ago, and I was like, I'm going to write a game to go with these dog miniatures because all dog miniatures deserve very good games. Absolutely, as well as going to heaven. Um, yes. What, have you got a dog? Uh, not currently, but I've had a, a number of dogs <sighs> through the, the course of my life. And I actually used to train uh, service animals. I raised guide dogs for the blind. And oh, wow. Okay. So that's 
you know, having a dog and is a definitely a big part of my life experience though. Right now I'm, I'm just traveling too much to own one. Yeah. Well, okay. Not what kind of dog, what dog would you be, John? You know, if I came home from work and you know, I opened the door and you were there in dog form, it'd be questions obviously asked by my wife. Why is there a dog in the house? But what dog would you be? So the thing is, I would like to think that I'm some kind of retriever, you know, like a nice majestic golden or a a loyal Labrador. But unfortunately, I'm probably just some kind of really annoying barking dog. Like, (laughs) oh man, now I'm going to offend someone because I'm going to say a dog breed and someone's going to be listening and be like, hey, that's my dog and I love them. (laughs) So we'll leave it at little annoying barking dog. You know, go to the We Are Not Cats podcast (laughs) if you want to talk about dogs. You don't get out of here. But yeah, I'd be the same. I would be the one that would just, you know, you know. Yeah, and then I like to chit chat. at wizards. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Who would you like to work with? I mean, who would you do the? Um, who would you do the kind of the the dropping the ceramic cup of coffee on the floor and having the cup shatter? Phone call. Who would be the person that would if they phoned up and said? John, I want to work with you, John. Hmm. Uh, who, who, would, who would it be? Or who would go, what? You know. Uh, people that are, are very high on my my list to work with, probably uh, Yellow. I think they have a, a really strong handle on the on family games, and they have a commitment not just to making great games, but also to making great products with great art direction and they really understand who their games are for and yeah. who their audience is. Okay. Um, I really would love to work on a kids game, not a family game, but a true kids game with Haba. That's uh, definitely pretty high on my list. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe Madigo, the, the publishers of uh, Kemet and Cyclades and Innis, uh, right, because I okay. think they... They are also one of those people who they pay attention to the whole product and yeah. they they understand really powerful, unique art direction. I love Innis. I know the art is very polarizing, but <laughs> I think it's a fantastic product with fantastic art. And, I mean, what's what's next for you now? I mean, obviously you've released this fantastic um, DPG <laughs> uh, dog playing game. But yeah. um, what's I mean? What's next? Where can we expect you to pop up next? You said you're working on so much stuff. Is there stuff you can talk about? Have you, you know you've got to be kind of ambiguous and kind of drop clues? Are you just going to say just wait and see, or are you just going to say get me back on the podcast in eight months' time and I can tell you all about it? So what is next for me? I have uh, four more games that are are signed with publishers and have release dates kind of through 2019 so uh toil and trouble from crafty games is a uh, hand management game where you are witches and you brew potions by shaking them up in a little plastic cauldron and i think that's one people are are really gonna like next year yeah uh clairvoyance with a bnb game studio is a cooperative game where you are fortune tellers uh, door number three with Peacekeeper Games is a lightweight family game where your game mm-hmm. show hosts trying to trick your opponents into uh, taking the worst possible prize. And then I'm headed to Gen Con in about a week and a half, and I have 
uh, two games that I'll be pitching there, Pharaoh's Feast and Causality, which is a more big box time looping game that actually just recently won the Kublai Khan Design Award. So I'm oh, hoping right, okay. uh, people other than me actually think it's it's good. So I'm That's hoping cool. someone will pick that up. And then I have a lot more contract development and freelance projects, most of which I cannot talk about. Um, I guess if you already were a backer of the Kickstarter campaign Noises at Night from BB yeah. Game Studio, uh, there's a children's book included with that game that I helped edit. Uh, so if you want a, a weird children's book based on a board game, I am your man. <laughs> there you go. It's like just it's sickening how talented you are um, and you you know it's like oh yeah and I help guide dogs for the blind and it's just like what no one can be this nice you must have some kind of vice you must be oh know. I'm not I, I am not nice uh... <laughs> I know you can't I've mean, said this it's like oh I'm gonna do it I really wanna do a kids game it's like oh for my goodness sake it's ridiculous you can't ask one you can't answer one question okay Mr. Briga you are in the middle of the zombie apocalypse, okay? You have your dog Scruffs by your side, who's a black lab, loyal, but stupid. But you are trying to get away from the zombie hordes. You head down an alleyway where you're dodging bins and cardboard and Scruffs is beside you. You see a crack in a door further up. You open the door... Scruffs follows you in. You shut the door behind you, you lock it, and you flick the light switch to the left of you and you realise you are in the one of the biggest board game emporiums you've ever seen in your life. It has every single type of conceivable board game that's ever been. First editions, second editions, expansions... In the middle of the checkered white and black floor, there is a red trolley. The red trolley doesn't have the hard rubber wheels. It has like little pneumatic wheels, which makes it a lot easier to drag everywhere. And it, you know, has um, basically enough space for scruffs to sit in there if the need kind of arises. You can take any three board games with you. First editions, second editions, expansions. And no matter where you go, whether you meet with other like-minded Sloan survivors or step into communities of people, the answer to the question, do you want to play a board game, is always going to be yes. What three board games do you take with you, John? What three? Three board games during the zombie apocalypse. Uh, note that a a more while well, I I thought of it, it was not a real consideration. I could, in fact, kick Scruffs out of the cart to make space for more games, but I would never do that. You're only allowed three. <laughs> uh, so I'm only allowed three. Uh, okay, selection number one is is very easy. It's actually going to be uh, Yogi from from Bez because. Oh, yeah. And specifically Yogi and not in a bind because it's manufactured using plastic cards. They're going to hold up better during the zombie apocalypse. Okay. Um, and like- it's a fantastic party game. Easy to it teach. Is. It gets is. very silly. You need a little bit of humor during the zombie apocalypse. 
You do. It'd be interesting to try and get a zombie to stick a card under its arm as its arm falls off and instantly loses the game. It would be yeah, well, that's really... that's how you tell. Uh, you know, if you can't tell who the zombies are. <laughs> stick this card under your arm. Okay. Yeah. That's a good, that's a, that's a fair shout. Next one. Uh, next, I would pick... Probably Takal. Uh, and ideally, in our board game Emporium in the Zombie Apocalypse, they have the French edition of Takal from Super Meeple, because the pieces are much nicer. Uh, okay. And they're, they're resin temples instead of cardboard temples. But Takal is an incredible thinky Euro, and I have to be in the exact right mood to play it, but I would categorize it as my favorite game of all time. So if you're listening oh. to this and you have not played... 1999 Spiel DR winner to call. Go out, find a copy, play yourself a really good game. There you go. That's um, a ringing, and, ringing endorsement. And third, yeah. Third, I am going to pick. Hmm. Third, I'm going to take a deck of cards, a standard deck of playing cards. Really? Okay. Um, because the the number of games you can play with a standard deck of cards is incredibly high. And while I picked my, my first two, you know, I picked Yogi because it's survivable mm. uh, in the zombie apocalypse. I don't think it's ever going to get damaged. I picked a call because I love it and it's a long, thinky strategy game. And I want something I can zero in on. Pick the deck of cards because I will never run out of new games to play and new new games to try using that deck of cards. That sounds fair enough. You've got plenty of room in that trolley for that dog. See, you were saying you were going to kick the dog out, but picking... Um, picking Picking Yogi and obviously picking a deck of cards, you've left plenty of space for that dog. See, you're a nice guy. Yeah, well, scr- you know, Scruffs, he likes to he likes to stretch out. Um, if this, uh, you know, uh, honorable mention fourth pick would go to the lawn game Cub, uh, which is that, you know, it's a wooden block tossing game, uh, yeah. mostly because I think I could teach Scruffs to play it with me. <laughs> oh, dear. Like the littlest hobo. Okay, thing. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um... Thank you very, very much for coming on, John. This has been um, a lot of fun. If people want to keep up with you on the interweb nets, where can we find you? Uh, The best place to keep up with me is uh, my Twitter, which is at Dasbrieger, D-A-S-B-R-I-E-G-E-R. You can also find me at uh, johnbrieger.com though that has a lot less content than than my Twitter feed, so. Okay, okay. Well, what we'll do is we will make sure that we um, take those links and we'll put them in the show notes so we have notes to show along with Rurik, which we will make sure we'll spread it a little bit far and wide and see if we can get the last. Well, it's still a week to go. At time of recording, I will make sure that we get this episode out as quickly as possible so we can maybe pick up the waifs and strays who are undecided on whether they, yeah. they want to, and to I, back up. 
I will also send you a link. Anyone listening, uh, Doggo Delvers is free. So if you want a very silly oh, RPG yeah, 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 yeah. where you play as dogs, uh, we can put a link to download that right in the show notes and you can grab yourself a free copy. Absolutely. We shall do that as well. We shall do that as well. If you want to keep an eye on what we are up to and what we are doing, um, you will find us on normal haunts and the normal places. We are on Twitter at We Are Not Wizards, Instagram at We Are Not Wizards, Facebook at We Are Not Wizards. We've got the website, which is wearenotwizards.com. We've got the blog, which we have people writing on now. And if anybody's interested in writing a review, writing a think piece, or just stretching those little thought writey muscles, then feel free to give us a shout. It's wearenotwizards.blogspot.com. The wonderful um, Paul Kellett from the uh, Gamers Guild in Preston has already put a review of Snowdonia on there. And uh, there's going to be a few more arriving over the next couple of weeks. Um, you can also see us in places like YouTube. We're on the usual podcast catchers like, uh, well, there's Podknife and there's Stitcher and Spreaker and Acast and Player FM and Spotify as well. We're still on Spotify. People are actually listening on Spotify, which I have no idea why you would do that. Um, but it's up to them. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts as well. Um, If you want to support the show, then please consider dropping us a rating or a review or a subscription. If you are going to give us a rating or a review, don't give us 10 stars because it makes me big-headed. And don't give us a one star because it makes me cry. Give us something in the middle, like a five, because it's average. And we are a little bit average. But the person who's not been average tonight is the rather wonderful, the rather fantastic Mr. John Brieger. Thank you very, very much, John, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Well, thank you. And I, I think there is probably one one more thing that we forgot to explain about. It applies to both you and me, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we talked about being a developer, we talked about being a, a designer, we talked about editing children's books, but I want to make it certifiably clear, I am not a wizard. I bless you, child, for saying that. That is, you have, you know, may angels see you to your rest. That is a beautiful sentiment from a wonderful human being, you know, um, <laughs> and I really appreciate it. Thank you very, very much. Uh, <laughs> Um, there are only, as I say, there was usually only two more things to go, but John's just jumped in there and, you know, he's just put a big smile on my face in this weary and tired world. And, uh, um, but the second thing, I guess, is to say say goodbye. So is a goodbye from the rather wonderful, the rather fantastic Mr. John Brager. Say goodbye, John. Goodbye, everybody. And it's a goodbye from me. Remember, stay safe. Row sixes, um, dog RPGs, the formation of Kiev and Russian places. It's all going to be in the show notes. Check it out. And keep an eye out for what John's going to be doing in the future because this is, you know, if this is what he's doing just now, imagine what he's going to be doing in the next kind of 18 months, two years. But until the next time, goodbye. <laughs>